0: supposed to be this way look in the mirror but you find someone you never thought you'd be chapter two so if you have your bibles and you want to turn in there feel welcome to do that or if you have a device you want to use feel free to pull that passage up we'll be going through the whole chapter so we'll read through it but uh just kind of be explaining it as we go along Uh, Just a couple things I want to bring attention to. You already heard a little bit about uh, the learning and living God's Word. just want to go ahead and and say that once again, if you'd like to be part of that class and just learn how to dig into God's Word and... uh and really, you know, answer some tough questions at times. Like, what does it mean? What does it mean in its original context? Um, and how does it apply to today? That's really what we're going to be looking at. And so I want to give you that as an opportunity. Um, I think it'll be a fun, fun time together, a fun class, and it should be uh, really beneficial. Also, just to remind you, we got some prayer things, uh, some some times of prayer during the day on a Sunday morning, and then Thursday. And so, uh, if you have more questions about those, those have already been kind of announced and talked about. But following the service here, we're going to give you an opportunity to pray. We want to create more of that that culture of prayer. And sometimes we, we feel maybe um, I don't know if "embarrass" is the right word, but for whatever reason, there's there's always something that kind of holds us back. Maybe on a Sunday morning, just say, you know what, I'm here at a service. There are other people here, brothers and sisters in Christ, that we can pray with. And so we want to give you that um, opportunity and have some people to pray with. And so that will be following the message. You can come up and on, on either wing up here and pray with some people. Uh, they would love to, to do that with you. So that will be following the service today. And uh, we'll continue that on, on a weekly basis. So we're looking forward to that. And people to even join that prayer team. So if that's something you would like to be part of, you said I'd love to pray with people, and you want to be part of that, then you can see Andrew, talk to him. He's up here in the front, waving his arm, yeah. and uh, he'd love to talk to you about putting you on a schedule and, and working with you on that. So, Well, this last week, there were a uh, few things that hit the news uh, I want to go over because it affects the church a little bit. Uh, one, I don't know how many of you heard the story about a pastor named Victor Gonzalez. Anybody hear the story about that? Okay, down in California, uh, Imperial Valley, Valley Ministries, uh, he was, started back several years ago, but he started luring people into a ministry, uh, specifically homeless people into a ministry. And he would promise them things like a bed and, and clothing and a place to, to um, you know, stay and be fed and warmth and all that sort of thing. And, and he said, you know, come here, we'll take care of you. And so people are like, hey, that's a great deal. We'll go there. And, and then they'd get in there, and he'd start telling them and teaching them the, all the things that he wanted them to do. And one of the things, that very uh, very specific, one of the things they wanted them to do was work nine hours a day, six days a week, on a street corner begging for money. And then, uh, of course, those proceeds would come to the, the church to you know help take care of them, of course. Um, well, eventually, the... Uh, Couple people like the IRS, um, you know, started saying, "Hey, this isn't appropriate," and, and there were some complaints. You know, there were people uh, that were getting out of it and saying, "Hey, he's he's abusing people. He's you know, oppressing people," and and so they ended up raiding. Um, well, they ended up actually arresting like I think twelve different people who were over this this whole ministry, this whole scam, the scheme, really. And so uh, that kind of hit the news. And any time those type of things hit the news, and it puts a bad name on the church. It seems like it really hits hard sometimes. And it hits home because you look at those situations and you think, you know, we're a church and we want to share the love of Christ with people. And then every once in a while you've got these churches out there putting a bad name to Christ. It's unfortunate. So that was one thing that happened. Uh, Another thing that happened this last week, um, a guy named Jared Wilson. Anybody hear about this guy? Um. He's with Greg Laurie, uh, his ministry. Greg Laurie has a huge ministry, does a lot of, um, gives a lot of salvation messages out there in, in various formats, conferences, crusades, those types of things, has led a lot of people to Christ, huge ministry, huge uh, church, and has many staff, and Jared Wilson was one of the staff of that, that church and that ministry, and he, he created a whole other ministry called Anthem of Hope. And the reason he created that ministry because he himself struggled with depression and suicide. And so he created this whole thing. In fact, I have a, a write-up here of what they said they actually did. It's a faith-centered effort sought to amplify hope for those who, like uh, Pastor Wilson, who suffered from depression and, and so forth, um, are battling brokenness, depression, anxiety, self-harm, addiction, and suicide. And so he had led in many different workshops and messages and so forth, telling people, you know, you need to f- fight depression, we can, we can help you, we have different ways we can help you, fight off suicide and those types of things. Well, then this last week, he himself committed suicide. Um, you, you hear things like that. Not only that, he left behind his wife, um, Julie, who's 30 years, I mean, he's young, 30 years of age, and then they had two, two children. So you read about things like that, and you hear about things like that, that's just in one week, you know, some of the things that are going on in the church, and you realize in our world and in the church, things can be messy, right? And you you look to the church at times, you think, man, if anybody on the earth should have it together, it should be the church, We have the hope of Christ living in and through us. We know what His truth has to say. It guides us. It directs us. It tells us that even though we're sinners, we're saved by grace. It points us in the direction of honoring and worshiping God. We get to come together. We have a group of believers to encourage us along the way. And yet someone like Jared can have all those feelings and thoughts of depression and suicide and eventually cave and give in to those types of things. And you kind of step back and you start to ask the question, why? Why doesn't God just kind of make all that stuff go away, right? Why doesn't He make the pain and the hurt and the trials and, and all of that go away? And on one hand, just to answer that question, He, he does. It's a future event, it's going to take place. We die, we go to heaven, we're glorified, and all that goes away. Or He's going to come back, He's going to set up an earthly kingdom, and then there's going to be a time period where there's going to be uh, some war, and there's going to be some fighting, and spiritual battle, and so forth. But eventually, He'll set up a new heaven and new earth, and all of that will be gone. And it says very specifically in the Bible, there will be no more mourning and crying after that time. But until then, we're living in a world where God allows for sin and the consequence of sin to continue. And because of that, we're in this time period where sometimes we step back and we look at what's happening in this world and we ask this, that simple question why? Why, God? Why do these things happen? So what we want to talk about this morning is the whole concept of, of providence, and I want to talk about how God's way does triumph and lead us in that direction. I think that's where our story goes as we continue into the book of Esther. We had kind of that setting the stage, and we're going to continue to set the stage a little bit this week and meet Esther and meet Mordecai. And then next week, the the plot will thicken a little bit more. But we want to find out who these two people are that are going to show up on the scene and eventually live out their faith with courage. And one of the things I'm convinced more and more as I study Esther is that both Esther and Mordecai probably weren't walking with the Lord too well at the beginning. But as God continues to work behind the scenes, and as you see providence being played out, God brings them into a better relationship with Him until you get to verse or until you get to chapter four, when Mordecai actually recognizes, "Oh, this is the mighty hand of God that's doing this and bringing us along." And sometimes we have to be brought along that way. Well, here's our big idea for the day: Earthly kings may get their way, but God still has the final say. Okay, it rhymes a little bit, so maybe it'll stick in there. But earthly kings may get their way but God still has the final say. And that's really the the point we're going to be looking at as we go through and see that you have a a king here, an earthly king, who gets his way and and gets to do a lot of the things that, that he wants to do. But through the whole process, God is working his way and has the final say. And so that's that's the direction, hopefully you'll see that as we move forward. Well, let's first talk about this whole idea of providence, because I know I kind of just threw that out there last week, uh, asked you to, to write a question, what is, you know, about providence you want to know. Uh, Dan was the only one that publicly said it to everybody, so he's like, hey, you're going to have to answer this now. I know, I know the way Dan works. So. Um, but uh, it's, a, it's a good question, and that's the question of uh, what's the difference between coincidence and providence? But providence, just a simple definition is this, to foresee and provide, okay, to foresee and provide. So you see forward and you provide for I'll give you a very simple, and this God's far more complex than this. But let's go back to kind of a, a farmer's point of view. Uh, spring comes, and maybe they till the soil in the fall and it's prepared. They do that a lot here. Or maybe they go out, they plow the ground, then they diss the ground, smooth it out a little bit, throw some corrugates in it, and, and then they plant the seed. And then they take care of it, they cultivate the soil, they fertilize it, and, and that seed grows What the farmer is doing in that situation is he's providing a way for the seed to grow. And in a sense, that's kind of what providence is, but on a greater scale when you're dealing with God. Because God knows every single thing we need to stimulate growth, how to grow, how to correct when we don't do the right thing. He knows every single thing. He's a sovereign God and is in control of all things and is able to guide and direct perfectly. That's what providence is. And so providence is this, this mastermind, if you will, or a powerful God that is working behind the scenes. So really the difference between consequence and providence is that both consequence and providence refer to events coming together you know, at a specific time to accomplish something that's unusual or extraordinary or something like that. But conf, or coincidence is the belief that these events happen by chance, Providence is the belief that these things came together in the direction of, in our context, a powerful God. So we're not really relying on chance, we're relying on a powerful God. So really, as far as followers of Christ and followers of God, there really is no coincidence. Because we believe in a sovereign, powerful God that brings things together. Now, when you start to to talk about that, that's when you start to throw out those questions. Okay, well, you just talked about at the beginning here about a church that was acting really inappropriate towards people, oppressing people, abusing people. How can that be providence? And somehow within, and this is a mystery. I, I will just tell you it's a mystery to me. But somehow within God's plan and his ability, he is a sovereign God that allows man to sin and gives him freedom. And he meshes it together, and that sovereignty and that freedom that he gives to us produces providence in a way. So he is always overseeing everything, but he allows for us to have freedom. And there's sin and there's consequences that come with that. But God is able the whole way to work what he needs to work at the time. Psalm 130 Excuse me, 103:19 it says the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. So we know that God is a sovereign God. He is powerful. There's no one who can really challenge him. He's just he's just that powerful. But one of the great verses on providence is Romans 8:28. It says this, "We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose." God is able to work things for the good for his children, those who love him. And that's God's providence at work. So that's a little bit of, of providence. Uh, you may have more questions, so if you do, again, feel free at the end. You can write that on a note, and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more as we continue through Esther. Because I do think providence is a big, big part of the message as we go forward. Well, let's take a look at this book, Esther. Uh, we're going to be starting with verse 1, going all the way through the end of the chapter of chapter two. So let's pray and then we'll dig in together. Father, it's good to be able to have your word and your truth and that it guides us, that it reminds us things like you are a powerful, sovereign God. You do work all things together for the good of those who love you. And we can rest in that. We can trust in that. And there are times we throw up our hands and God, I just don't understand why some of the things happen the way they do. But in the midst of it, I learned to trust you and somehow, you always work things for good. I don't always get to see it. We don't always get to see it. But I thank you that we can trust you with it. You are good, righteous. You are just. And we have no reason to doubt you. And so as we look into your word today, guide us, direct us into these, uh, this, this story that gives us so much confidence that you are a God who is working behind the scenes. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, starting with verse one, it says this sometime later, if you go to the end of the chapter, we're about three to four years from chapter one. So there's a time period, there's a gap that takes place between chapter one and chapter two. During that time, uh, King Ahasuerus has gone out, and he's begun to um, you know, take other provinces. He's continuing to, to expand his kingdom, and he goes to Greece, and he's not successful. In fact, he begins to come in and, and starts to take over a couple, uh, couple of the, the lands and the cities and so, towns and so forth, and then Greece rallies their troops and comes and, and stops him dead in his tracks, and so he comes home now, kind of with his tail between his his legs, and so when you read this, the first time I read this, it says, when uh, King Ahasuerus' rage had cooled down, I thought, man, he's been angry for a long time about Vashti, but there's a lot more behind the scenes here when you read and and see what's happened between chapters one and chapters two. He's gone to war and he's been beat, and so he comes home, he's upset his rage has cooled down, and then he remembered Vashti and here 's another thing I think that 's worth pointing out in Chapter One. We hear of all of the great things about his kingdom and how much power he had and, and how many provinces he had, and how he was able to have this one hundred and eighty day party and Then he has this queen Vashti and she 's a beautiful queen, and she can just you know, he can have her come in and parade her around. And he comes home now and he's, he's realizing, wow, I do have limitations. I can't have these endless parties. And I, you know, I can't just go take whatever I want. And then he remembered, and I don't even have a queen. And so he thinks about what he should do next. Um, and that's where verse 2 comes in. The king's personal attendants then suggested, let a search be made for a beautiful uh, young virgins for the king. And the king appointed commissioners in each province of his kingdom so that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem at the fortress of Susa, put them under the supervision of Hegai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, and keep them the required beauty treatments. Now, it tells us a little bit more about what that is. The young woman who pleases the king will become the queen instead of Vashti. This suggestion pleased the king, and he did accordingly. So this, this was the plan. Bring them all in. They're going to receive these, these beauty treatments. Uh, in the fortress of Susa, there was a Jewish man named Mordecai, son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite. Uh, this gives us a little bit of, of the background. This is important in Jewish history that we know where the families come from. Uh, you can look into that a little bit more. The son of Kish is a name that you find earlier in the Old Testament, but that was the father of uh, King Saul. And so there's some question here, is, is it the same guy? Most likely not, because... The age just doesn't work. Um, Or it could be a descendant of of Kish. That could be another possibility. So if you like genealogies, that's just a little bit of information for you. But certainly for a Jewish reader, this is significant to know what their family line looks like. Verse 6. He had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the other captives when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took Je- uh, Jeconiah of Judah into exile and that goes back to even the time of, of daniel there's some other people who were exiled at that time uh, with King Nebuchadnezzar. Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin hadassah now that 's the Hebrew name for Esther, and her Greek name is es- or excuse me her Persian name is Esther because she had no father or mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was extremely good looking. When her father and mother died, Mordecai had adopted her as his own daughter. And when the king's command and edict became public knowledge, and when many young women were gathered at the fortress of Susa under Haggai's supervision, Esther was taken to the palace. Now, we're not sure how that happened. There's some speculation. Was she taken by force, many people believe, or was, was she, did she volunteer that position? Hey, there's a palace, and Mordecai encouraged her to go. Um, I tend to think it was more by force. That seems to just kind of be the way the king rolled at the time, um, but, but it's certainly not spelled out here for us. So, she goes into the supervision of Heggai, keeper of the women, and the young women pleased him and gained his favor, speaking about the eunuch, and he accelerated the process of beauty treatments and the special diet that she received. He assigned seven hand-picked female servants to her, that's pretty nice, right, from the palace and transferred her and her servants to the harem's best quarters. So, so Esther was brought in and right away it was, she was identified as someone who was just special. And that was probably some of God's doing. Again, there's that providence. Somehow God put her in the right place at the right time with the right person, and she accelerated in this process and was, was put in the harem's best quarters. Esther did not reveal her ethnicity or her family background because Mordecai had ordered her not to make them known. Now, I want to make a point of this. This is a little interesting, and if you go back to a story called Daniel, maybe you're familiar with that story. If you're not, you can read about it in the Bible. There's a book called Daniel. But at the beginning of Daniel, it talks about how Daniel was brought into Nebuchadnezzar's wise men, just group of guys that he brought in to teach and train and so forth, so his school, so to speak. Daniel was brought in. and When Daniel was brought in, he was brought in from Israel, and he came he said very specifically, I will not eat... The food you give me, I want to eat my Jewish diet. And there was a little bit of a conversation back and forth, and there's a little bit of a, a challenge, and, and Daniel said, listen, if you give me a few days to do this and it proves that I'm, I'm healthier, then you're going to see that God's diet is better than the king's diet and so forth. And it goes back and forth, and Daniel makes his point. And God blesses Daniel. Daniel gets wiser, faster, it seems like, than everybody else, and, and God accelerates him to a higher position. The contrast here is that Esther has already lived in a foreign land for a while. And when she's brought in, she just kind of assimilates to the whole process. And this is kind of why I talked about, I think at the beginning, both Esther and Mordecai don't seem to be living out their faith in a way we might say some of the other people did in the Old Testament in a very strong fashion. Because they were able to hide the fact that they were Jews. And if they were really living out their Jewish faith, they would have been eating what other people were eating. They would have had Saturdays Their Sabbath day as a time where it was very clear that they stopped doing work and, and followed those rules and all that. But somehow they were able to hide their ethnicity. They were able to hide their Jewish background. And so they go through this, and she goes through this whole process, and she's brought in. Now, again, God uses that situation, and God blesses her because he had... A reason to. He was going to use her, and we learn about that in a couple more chapters. So every day, Mordecai now took a walk in front of the harem's courtyard to learn how Esther was doing and see what was happening to her. And during the year, before each young woman's turn to go to King Ahasuerus, the harem regulation required her to receive beauty treatments with oil of myrrh for six months and then with perfumes and cosmetics for another six months. You begin to see a little bit about what the the Persians did. The Persians, really, when you go back through history, you start to see that they are the ones that started kind of these beauty treatments. Now, there were perfumes and things like this before, but it seems like the Persians really kind of got the ball rolling and then the the Greeks picked up on it the Romans picked up on it and so forth. But here, they were given six months of treatment, uh, and They had certain diets. The young women would, would go to the king after that time, and uh, she was given whatever she requested to take with her from the harem to the palace. And so she could request, hey, I want this perfume, this fragrance, or I want, you know, some object or something like that, and she could go to the king with that. She would go in the evening, and then in the morning, she would return to a second harem under the supervision of the king's eunuchs, Shashgah's I think that's how you say it, something like that. Uh, keeper of the concubines, she never went to the king again unless he desired her and summoned her by name. So again, it gives you a little bit of the story. It just tells us what's happening before Esther gets her shot at it. So uh, a while back, I can't remember how long ago, but Rebecca, she was like, hey, we should watch this movie, and, and uh, it was called One Night with a King, I think it was something like that. I'm like, is that a movie we should be watching? Um, and, uh, and then she says, no, 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 it's a story about Esther. It's like, oh, okay. And so we watched it. I don't know how many have seen that. I would actually recommend it. I think it gives you a good context of what it might look like back then. Uh, they definitely romanticize it a little bit, I think, between, uh, between the king and Esther. But it can be a pretty good um, – it gives you a good idea maybe of what life was like at that time. But it also demonstrates and, and tells us a little bit about this process where um, the king – Basically, it was just in his, his bedchamber. There was preparation for these young women. They would come in that night. Okay, They would be intimate. They would sleep together. And then after that, they were basically, he, she became part of the concubines, and then they would go into the concubine chamber. If he liked her, then down the road, he could say, hey, I'd like that girl, and they'd come back. Okay? Um, obviously, that's not something God desires for a relationship, and for any woman to go through that, it's really a a terrible situation. You think about, hey, I'm going to go. I'm going to be with this king. Yes, I'll be in a palace. Yes, I'll have beauty treatments. Yes, I'll be taken care of as far as food and a place to sleep and all that kind of stuff, so all those needs are taken care of, but they really did not have an intimate relationship with anybody, so it could be a very lonely life. And that's what it's telling us here. So Esther was, was in this group of young women who would be brought to the king. Now he goes on in verse 15. It talks about when it was her time. Esther was the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had, had adopted her as his own daughter. When her turn came to the, uh, go to the king, she did not ask for anything except what Haggai. She learned to trust this guy, Haggai. The king's eunuch, keeper of the women, suggested. And so Esther gained favor in the eyes of everyone who saw her. She was then taken to King Ahasuerus in the palace in the tenth month, in the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women. So she won more favor and approval from him than did any of the other virgins. He placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen in place of Vashti. The king held a great banquet now, for all his officials and staff, and it was Esther's banquet. He freed his provinces from tax payments and gave gifts worthy of the king's bounty. That's pretty nice. Do you imagine that if the president was like, "Hey, I'm getting married. Uh, by the way, you guys don't have to pay taxes." Um, that'd be pretty cool. Probably not going to happen, but um, that's that's how Esther becomes queen. So that's the background, that's the story, and that's what we're given there. So we get to meet Esther, and then as you continue moving forward, verse 19, you meet our second hero of the story, and that's Mordecai. And so we already got... Introduced to his name and a little bit of his background, but I want to bring in kind of the rest of the story and what the king's going to be able to remember of Mordecai. So, verse 19, when the virgins were gathered a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Apparently, this was something that Mordecai did, whether it was a job that he had, um, you know, that sort of thing, or whether it was just a place he went to because he wanted to continue to have some sort of input and care over Esther when he had the chance. Uh, we're not sure. But verse 20, it says, Esther had not revealed her family background or her ethnicity as Mordecai had directed. So this is the second time this is said it in the chapter. Again, I think pointing to the fact that they were able to live a life where they assimilated with Gentiles, people who were not uh, Jews. So she obeyed Mordecai's orders, as she had always done while he raised her. Now during those days, when Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, uh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance, became infuriated and planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. And when Mordecai learned of the plot, he reported to the queen, and she told the king on Mordecai's behalf. And when the report was investigated and verified, both men were hanged on the gallows. This event was recorded in the historical record in the king's presence. And that's important to remember because later in the story it comes back. And that's one of the reasons why I think the author included this portion right here. So we'll revisit this, but so just kind of store it away, what Mordecai did at this moment. By the way, if you want to... You can read the rest of Esther on your own, and you can pick up those pieces as well, and then uh, we'll talk about them as, as we go forward. I want to bring you back to the big idea. Earthly kings may get their way, but God still has the final say. And this is why I, I bring this up and why I went this direction. We were over in Cannon Beach this week, and uh, and we were just... I don't know, doing a conference over there, did some worship uh, for the conference, listened to a speaker, got a walk on the beach, and it was just, it was a beautiful place, great time away, Uh, loved going there, but on the way back I started um, kind of putting the notes together for this message, and I'd already done a lot of the background reading and everything, and so as I'm going back, I'm in the backseat of the car, because I have, I can't remember, Rebecca or Emily were driving, one of them, And, and next to me was was Evelyn, and Evelyn is, she's uh, about ten and a half months old now, and so I'm watching as she's, you know, in that cute stage, making faces, cooing, all that kind of stuff. And I started to read through this passage, and it just kind of jumped out. What if I was Mordecai, and Evelyn was Esther, or what if any of my other daughters, Emily or Elaine or Elila, were Esther? How? would I handle this kind of situation? Where a king would come in and just take one of my daughters away and take them to the palace. How would I handle that? How would you handle that? That's difficult to process. It's difficult to think through because we kind of live live in a spot where we're pretty secure. Now, there are things that take our children away. That could be a marriage and then all of a sudden our kids go away. It could be a health concern, it could be cancer, it could be separation um, by families or death, it could be um, other things that take place, for instance, drugs, alcohol will take and kids disappear from that and so forth. And so there are things like that that separate. How, How do people handle that? How do you handle those trials and those difficulties when things don't go the way you want them to go or they don't go the right way? For instance, this is not God's plan. This is not God's design. He did not say, yes, king's get to just marry whoever they want to, even though there was an Israel king that did that. Almost the same thing, probably very similar with Solomon, 700 concubines and wives. I mean, he had plenty of them, probably very similar to where he had a night with them, and then they just became a concubine. So even Israel's kings were like that at times. How do, you, how do you process when, when things don't go the way you want them to go? How do you trust God in those kind of situations? And so that's what I was just kind of re- reflecting on and thinking about as I was just driving home, looking at my daughter, and she's all cute right now. I'm like, oh, she's is wonderful. I can't wait to see how she grows up and what God does with her. And then I think, but man, there could be something that takes her away. What would you do? Well, Mordecai lived through that, and he had times where he could go and see her and talk to her a little bit, and as the story continues, we see that it actually helped him grow his faith and understanding in in God. But I know there's some people here that have gone through some really tough times, In fact, I can look back at my life and I can look at some of the things that I thought I was going to do and some of the things that I wanted to accomplish and then God kind of changed some pathways and and pulled different directions and and I'm starting to say, okay, God, why are you doing this? Why are we going down this path? Why are we going down this route? And God's like, because i got something to teach you. and You have to go that direction. There's some of you that have experienced much harder things. And it's difficult in the midst of those hard things to continue to trust God. God in them. But as we see in the rest of the story as the plot thickens and we see that there's a group of people, a remnant there in this land that was going to be killed and was going to be slaughtered God went ahead and and created a a way for them to be saved. They didn't even know it. They didn't know it was coming. But God was already working in the background. And the same can be said of us. As well, that even though through the pain and the heartache and the difficulty, that God is still working in the background. Um, I'm going to share this because she's not here today, and I I'll probably get away with it. However, probably her mom's not going to like me very much. But um, a, a, a year ago or so, we were singing "It Is Well," and if some of you don't remember. Um, just what happened with Mason and christine but and, and Wade and the Cunningham, uh, the Cunninghams and and the warns but uh, it 's incredible to watch somebody come up who 's lost their child and sing a song like it as well. How can you do that? How can you trust God through something like that? But people do. And I have some of the greatest respect for them, that they don't turn their back on God and say, you know what, you didn't save my child, I'm done with you. People can do that, and people walk away, and people have. I praise God for those that stick with it. And they learn to trust God, even though things take kids away, take people away, take loved ones away, um, <laughs> cause divisions, whatever, and people will just say, forget it, I'm done. I don't want anything to do with God anymore. I thought God was going to make my life perfect. I thought God was going to make it all you know, good and, and feel good. And We have all these things that we expect, but still things happen, bad things happen. And we have to trust God in the midst of it. He's working. He's working when we don't see it. And so that's, I think, a little bit of the story or a little bit of the lesson that we learned from this story in Esther. Trusting God um, takes courage, but trusting God's way is always the right way. And so as we continue to go forward, you're going to see that Esther had to have courage, Mordecai had to have courage to go through some times that were extremely difficult, but it's the right way because God's way is always the right way and we continue to trust in Him and lean on Him and who He is and what He's done. Well, there's one way that that God has told us is the absolutely right way for every single person on the face of the earth. I think it's important for us to end with that note and it takes courage to believe in it and it takes courage to share it with other people. Hebrews ten twenty it says, by his death, Jesus opened a new and living, a life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. John fourteen six says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That was Jesus speaking there. I am the way, he says. He's opened a new and living way to have this faith, to have this relationship with God who created us. And it's the only way. And some people don't like that. In fact, some people walk away from God because they say, why is there only one way, God? I want to do it my way. And God says, no, this is the way. It's through Jesus Christ. He's the only way. Ezekiel thirty three seventeen. I think it gives us a great, great answer for why people go their own way. But your people say the Lord's way isn't fair, even though it's their own way that isn't fair. When God's God, he can call the shots we don't get a call of shots. So we can either learn to listen to what God has to say and follow God in His way, or we can say, God, you're not fair. And there are people out there who will say, God's not fair. But God's way is perfect. And the word of the Lord is pure. He is a shield to all who take refuge in Him. Do you believe that? I think that's the, the challenge I'm left with. If I was in Mordecai's shoes and my daughter was, was taken away to a palace, to a king, and, and she may either become the queen, but queen, but there's more of a chance that she would just have a one-night stand with the king and be put in with the concubines. That, that would be the higher percentage. Would I be okay with that? Would I be able to say, God, your way is Perfect. Your way is pure. Those are difficult things for us as followers of Jesus Christ to say, but one thing we know we can't say for sure is God's way of salvation is perfect and pure, and the way people get saved is through Jesus Christ. And we need to be out there, not only believing in our own hearts and minds and lives, but we need to be sharing that with other people, because that's the way other people get saved, too. His way is perfect. His way is pure. So I don't know what you're challenged with this morning. I'm going to challenge you to do something throughout this week, give you a little bit of homework. You can think about this and whether you want to go home and do it. I think it's a great verse to learn. We don't talk about memorizing, but if you haven't memorized Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, I would encourage you to do that. This is what it says. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do you believe that? Proverbs 3. Five through six. It's a great verse to memorize and even start your whole day off with. I will trust the Lord with all my heart today. I will not lean on my own understanding, even though I think sometimes I know more than God does. Do you ever think that? You maybe don't verbalize it, but do you think that? God, if you did this my way, in fact, most of my prayers are like, hey God, can you do it my way? But I will choose to not lean on my own understanding, but I will acknowledge Him and trust that He will make my path straight. What a great way to start your day. I'll lean on God and what He's done. So memorize Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 this week if you haven't already. And then number two, in what ways do you struggle to trust God? You can ask that question, reflect upon that here as we come to a close, and how can it involve church and your life group help? One of the reasons we want to do prayer in the morning and invite you to come pray with us is because that's a way to help. Maybe you're, there's something on your heart right now, and you're just like, "I just need to, to trust this in God's hands." Uh, by nature, I am not a person who is content, very easy. And so that is an area I need to learn to trust God. I have got to just say, you know what? I'm going to let this go and be content with what God's doing. That's a a constant prayer in my life, to be content with where God has me, with what He has me doing, with what's going on in my life, and to be at joy and at peace with what He's doing and to just trust Him with it. So I need to be praying for that. How, How do you need to trust God more? What do you struggle to trust God with? And how can we at Involved Church and your life group help. So think about those things. And again, as we sing the last song, if you would like to, you can come up and pray. If you want to wait until after the singing is done, you can come up and pray after. Uh, We'll have people up here for for some time to pray with you. All right, think about those things, and uh, we'll close in a song.